You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Richard Russo. This program originally aired in 2007. This archived audio is clipped at the beginning. We apologize. They argue about such things as up and down. In an earlier section, Gabriel has talked about going to the moon and looking down at the earth, and Lucy's corrected him, and he said, well, if you're on the moon, you'd be looking up at the earth because gravity would determine down. And Gabriel has gone on to say, well, Gabriel disagrees. He says, imagine if you had a ladder that went all the way from the earth to the moon. You climbed all the way up to the top of the ladder till you got to the moon, you'd be looking down. So Gabriel is of the opinion that Lucy doesn't know up from down. And Gabriel also has a phrase that he uses. He talks about how much he loves to howl, his howling ways. And he's just referring to drinking. Lucy's father, Lou Lynch Sr., is a former milkman. He has um, loved his job, but the dairy has closed down and caused him to do a very foolish thing. He has invested all of their money on a local market called Ike Lubin's. And Ike Lubin's is, they have so little money uh, that they don't have enough money actually to get a new sign. So even though they've owned the market now for about a year, uh, they haven't changed the name of the market, which is still Ike's. And it is a central location for this novel. Lucy, you need to know, resembles physically, uh, resembles his father uh, tremendously and adores his father. He has a much more complex relationship with his mother. His father is an optimist. And so is Lucy. Lucy likes to think that good things are going to happen. His mother is not a pessimist, but she is a realist. And that doesn't sit well with Lucy. Finally, there is, in the second portion of this reading, a fair amount of black dialect. I'm very aware of the fact that when a white writer gets up and reads black dialect, it's a little bit like a a white actor getting up on stage in blackface. I'm very aware of that. I'm sensitive to it. I just don't know any way around it. So obviously my intention here is not to insult. I'm probably not going to be as good at this as I would dearly love to be. Just thought I would mention that. Also, in fairness, I would think this is probably a PG-13 rated reading. (laughs) New Hampshire Public Radio assures me that they'll be able to blip anything inappropriate, and let's freaking hope so. Okay. The Thomaston Free Library was located, seemingly out of fairness, on Division Street, at the upper end next to the cemetery. From the rear windows of the first floor stacks, you could see, at least in winter, the obelisk that marked the tomb of Sir Thomas Whitcomb, next to the flagpole at the cemetery's highest point. On Saturday mornings, I generally rose early and helped my father open Ike's, but by 11 or so, he would shoo me out, tell me to go do something fun. The money I earned at the store got put directly into my college fund. But on Saturday, I was given an allowance to cover the matinee that day and my small weekly expenses. The movie started at one, so usually I spent the two hours in between at the library returning the books that I had read the week before and checking out a new batch. During the school year, I couldn't read as many books a week as I did in the summer, so I took more time making my selections. My habit was to take a dozen or so books over to a small table in the stacks and examine the plastic-sheathed back covers and inside flaps more thoroughly. There, one Saturday morning, I thought I heard singing outside. 
And looking out the window, I was surprised to see Gabriel Mock weaving down the path that led through the cemetery and into the library's rear parking lot and singing at the top of his lungs. I couldn't make out the words because they came too fast, but the refrain ran, no more, no more, no more, no more. And this was the part that he bellowed the loudest. He carried a bottle-shaped brown paper bag. And at the edge of the parking lot, he stopped, put the brown paper bag to his lips, and drank, his head thrown back, until whatever was in the bottle was gone, after which he stared at it, dispirited. Then something funny occurred to him, and he resumed his singing with even greater gusto. No more, no more, no more, no more. As if the expected dovetailing of song and circumstance was just the funniest thing ever. He continued his journey, unfortunately without noticing the shin-high metal guardrail that ringed the parking lot over which he tumbled. He went down hard, hard enough to hurt himself, but was quickly back on his feet and looking around to see who had tripped him. The bottle lay at his feet, apparently unbroken, and he took it out of his bag and held it up to the light to make double sure that it was empty, then turned it upside down and shook it like a ketchup bottle to make triple sure. No more, no more, no more, no more, he warbled with somewhat diminished enthusiasm now, the joke having worn thin. Hearing the commotion outside, Mrs. Durkis left the circulation desk, came over and peered out my window, shaking her head at the sight of the little drunkard singing in the parking lot, then, muttering, returned to her desk. Gabriel was standing between two cars, one of which happened to be Jack Beverly's new Cadillac. I knew whose car it was because I had seen him and Nan climbing out of it just a few minutes before with an armload of books. And now they were standing at the circulation desk while Mrs. Durkis stamped due dates on the little cards and the jacket sleeves. A task she approached with utmost seriousness, making sure that each stamp sat squarely in the center of the tiny little rectangle in the grid. Other librarians stamped willy-nilly, but she countenanced no such slipshod work, and I admired that about her. The impatient look on Mr. Beverly's face suggested that he did not share my appreciation. <laughs> Nan, peering down the long row of stacks, saw me in my window seat and smiled, causing me to look around to see if there was something else she might be smiling at. And by the time I had determined that her smile must have been intended for me, she and her father had picked up their books and turned for the front door. I was contemplating all of this when I heard the sound of glass shattering outside. And I saw my fence-painting friend doing a little jig next to the Cadillac, the ground around it now glinting with broken green glass. No more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack, he sang with renewed enthusiasm. The caddy's rear window, I saw, now sported a diagonal crack. 
Gabriel must have heard the Beverly's approaching then because he darted off between parked cars, showing more speed and agility than I would have predicted in his drunken state. Just as he disappeared around one corner of the building, the Beverly's hove into view around the other, and Mr. Beverly stopped and put his hand on his daughter's forearm. His intention, I suppose, was to keep her from doing what she now did, which was to run over to the car for a closer look, right through all the broken glass. Her father stood where he was, gazing off in the direction where Gabriel had beaten his hasty retreat. What happened next was perhaps the most surprising thing of all. Nan Beverly began to cry. Father and daughter were 20 or 30 yards from where I sat, but I was still able to read the bewildered, frightened look on her face as he took her in his arms and, I suppose, tried to explain why anybody would want to do such a hateful thing. At some point, Mr. Beverly noticed me watching, and after getting Nan calmed down and helping her into the front passenger seat, he came over to the window. The window pane was thick, so his voice was muffled, but of course I didn't need to hear much to know what he was asking. Had I seen who did it? I shook my head. No. Back at Ike's, after the matinee, which Nan, showing no sign of her earlier upset, attended with her new boyfriend, I found myself still wishing that I hadn't lied to Mr. Beverly. I told my father what I had seen Gabriel Mock do, though I didn't mention lying to Nan's father. And my father responded just as I had expected, saying that it wasn't right to damage other people's property. Maybe Gabriel had a reason. He wasn't saying he didn't, but that still wasn't no excuse. Because I continued to be fascinated by how differently my parents saw things, I later discussed the episode with my mother, going into even greater detail in describing how drunk Gabriel had been, shouting, no more, no more, no more, no more, before smashing the whiskey bottle onto the rear window of the Beverly's Cadillac. When she offered no immediate comment, I confided to her the detail that I had withheld from my father, that I claimed to have seen nothing. You know, my mother said, sometimes you make me very proud. I thought about that before falling asleep. It was tempting to take pride in my mother's being proud of me, but with her, Nothing ever came to you clean. And it occurred to me that if sometimes I made her proud, there must be other times when I didn't. The next day, Sunday, I found Gabriel sitting with his back up against the Whitcomb Park fence, his legs splayed out in front of him. A recent cut cleanly bisected one eyebrow, and I didn't have to ask where that came from. He must have heard me ride up the gravel drive because his eyes remained closed, and I wondered for a moment if he might be dead. Finally, when I leaned my bike up against the fence, he opened one eye, the wrong one, since it caused the eyebrow to split open again and ooze tiny spots of blood. 
Junior, he said, how you be doing this fine morning? It's afternoon, I said, sitting down next to him. Already, he said. Can't be. It's morning. I can tell by the sun. Well, I knew better than to argue with Gabriel when he was sure about something, but in this instance, it was hard not to. It's afternoon, I told him. I can tell by my watch. I showed him, but he wasn't interested. Must be fast, he said, closing both eyes again. You go on home now. Tell your mama you forgot to wind your watch. Tell her you don't know what time it is. If I forgot to wind it, I said, it would run slow or stop. It wouldn't run fast. That's illogical. Junior, he said, do me a favor, go away. I don't have no strength to argue with stubborn white boys. Not today, I don't. Normally, I do, just not today. So I sat there annoyed until he finally opened that same eye again, causing the cut to show pink and bubble a second time. You still here, he said. I said I believed I was. I believe you are too. So, tell me what you did last night. You go out howling or what? Over the last month or so, Gabriel and I had agreed upon a fiction that I enjoyed howling as much as he did. Sundays, we'd describe the howling we'd done the night before and express surprise that we hadn't run into each other when the howling was upon us. <laughs> Gabriel guessed that we must howl in different circles. Usually it was fun to trade these stories, but after what I had witnessed yesterday, I wasn't in the mood, and I said so. I said I had stayed home. You ain't nothing but an amateur howler is why, Gabriel said. Bet you didn't even know what night it was last night. What was it? See, that's what I'm talking about. You an amateur. What was last night, Gabriel? Last night be a full moon, Junior. A real howler would have known that. Best night to howl, your full moon, you amateurs. You don't know your full moon. Where we were headed, I feared, was yet, yet another discussion that would end up with Gabriel telling me that I didn't know up from down. So why do you like to howl so much, I asked, since that's what had been puzzling me. I don't, he said, surprising me. Up to me? I'd never howl. Drove to it is what I am. You'd know that if you wasn't an amateur. This was proving to be an even slower conversation than usual. As a general rule, Gabriel liked to talk, but was never in a hurry to arrive anywhere. Two steps forward, one back was the sort of dance that he preferred. And the one step back was usually an insult of some sort. Don't know why I waste time trying to educate white boys and amateurs, especially you. You're both a white boy and an amateur. No help for you at all. Though they were nothing alike and spoke a different language entirely, at times Gabriel reminded me of my mother, both of them having concluded that I was a slow, reluctant learner. So what drives you to howling, I said. Put, Gabriel said. What you think? I shrugged, instantly uncomfortable. 
I had heard that word used in a similar context before and had a pretty good idea what it meant and that I shouldn't be discussing it. Pussy make you crazy, Gabriel said. You're still too young to know about that. I shrugged again, hoping to concede that he was right and then open a new line of inquiry. You like it though, I bet, he said. I gave him another shrug. Don't you be shrugging at me now. You're old enough to know that much. You like it or you don't like it. Even amateur white boys know if they like it or they don't like it. In that case, I said, I supposed I liked it. Ain't no suppose about it, suppose, he snorted. You a white boy if there ever was one. I said, fine, okay, I like to put you watch your mouth now, he advised. <laughs> your mama here, you going on about liking pussy, you be in big trouble. Don't come to me for help, neither, because I have to tell her the truth. How you told me your own self how much you like pussy, be in trouble then, won't you? Gabriel's spirits seemed to be improving by the minute. He had both eyes open now, and his voice, thin a few minutes ago, was robust. Good news is... You probably ain't going to have no brown girlfriends. Just as well, too, you take my word. Start out, you all they need. That's what they tell you, sugar, you all I need, you so sweet. Then one day you ain't paying attention, they find Jesus. <laughs> Black girl find Jesus, she might as well sew it up with a needle and thread. Put a zipper on it for all the good it's going to do her or you. I would have liked to change the subject, not because Gabriel's views on women were without interest, but because something else interested me even more. Knowing what I did about his howling, I had no trouble understanding why his wife would be growing weary of his shenanigans. What I would have liked to know, though, was what he had done to cause his own son to say, that he didn't have a father. I tried to imagine what my own father could do that would make me deny his very existence that way, and I failed utterly. Black girl find Jesus, Gabriel said. The next thing she find after that is the devil. You know who the devil is? I had a pretty good idea. You, I said. Damn straight, now you the devil. Yesterday, you sugar, you so sweet. Today, you're the devil. Turn you out so fast, make your head spin. Say, don't you be coming around here no more. While back, she liked to howl just like you, but now it's, don't you be coming around here with your howling ways. This child's studying you, she say, because by now you got one of those, maybe two, you ain't lucky. Pretty soon, she got the child poisoned against you. Don't want you for his daddy. Want some other man, don't have nothing to do with him. Preacher, probably. Somebody too good to howl. You stick to white girls. You know what's good for you, he said. Older they get, the better they like it. Even the ugly ones. Nothing better than an ugly old white woman. Grateful's what they is. That seemed to be the end of the lecture. Gabriel closed his eyes again and was silent for so long that I figured he'd fallen asleep. When I climbed back on my bike, though, he spoke again, his eyes still closed. So, you tattle on me yesterday or what?
What do you mean, I said. Don't get cagey with me now. I seen you sitting there in the library window, watching it all. They must have asked you who done it. I said I didn't see. He just nodded and said, without opening his eyes, you look just like your daddy, Junior. Spitting image. But you, your mama's boy. He must have sensed me glaring at him. You don't like me saying that, I guess. It wasn't very nice what you did, I told him. Breaking that bottle on Mr. Beverly's car? He never did anything to you. How do you know what he did and didn't do, Gabriel said. And he had a point, but I wasn't willing to concede the high moral ground just yet. Okay, I said, what did he ever do to you? Gabriel didn't respond at first, but finally he said, nothing. Man never done nothing to me. Truth is, I'm ashamed of myself, acting like God's own fool. Woman right, she don't want nothing to do with me. Right to warn the boy against me, too. My own damn fault, a whole mess. There. You happy now, Lou Lynch Jr.? You got it all straight now? No up from down, in case someone asks you? I wasn't happy, and I think he knew it. It was the first argument that I had ever won with Gabriel Mock, and it was worse than losing. It was true. I hadn't liked him saying that about my being my mother's son, even though he meant it, so far as I could tell, as a compliment. And when he called me Lou Lynch Jr., I hadn't liked that either, sensing an insult. One or the other, it seems, should have given me pleasure, but neither did. And in the end, pedaling away from Whitcomb Park, all I felt was guilty, which didn't make any sense either. I wasn't the one who'd gotten drunk and smashed a bottle on somebody else's Cadillac. It wasn't me sitting on the ground with a hangover, oozing blood from a torn eyebrow, the embodiment of my own foolishness. He could be sarcastic all he wanted, but it was his fault, just as he'd said. Still, the closer I got to building an airtight case against my friend, the worse I felt, and the more convinced I was that I was a slow, stubborn learner. And maybe I didn't know up from down. Thank you. Author Richard Russo's latest book is called Bridge of Size. Coming up after break, I join him on stage with a few of my questions and some insight from our live audience. I'm Laura Kanoy. You're listening to The Exchange on NHPR. Welcome back, everybody. It's great to be back here on Writers on a New England stage. 
And thanks to Richard Russo for coming in. And I told Richard earlier that I was pretty tired in September because I couldn't put this book down. I just kept staying up late every night trying to read it. Richard, right off the bat, you know, most novelists are trying to not only tell us a good story, make us stay up late, you know, reading their books, but also trying to convey an idea, a feeling, um, an experience to their readers. What are you trying to convey to us in Bridge of Size? Oh, um, I've been asked that question before, um, never about a book quite as long as this one, although my books have gotten bigger and bigger. I think that this book took me probably to a deeper and darker place than I had ever been before in any of my novels. And the title is indicative of that. The Bridge of Sighs in Venice is that place where people abandoned hope. Um, They would go before the civil court in the Doge's Palace, and if they did not have money or friends, or influence, and they crossed that bridge into the dungeons, they knew they were never going to come out again. And I think I realized fairly early on, not just that I wanted to set part of this story in Venice, but Venice, all of its bridges, and this particular bridge was going to serve as a metaphor in the novel for despair, for, uh, this is kind of a melancholy novel, and that this image was going to be pervasive. We were going to see bridge after bridge after bridge, and most of them were going to contain at least the possibility for catastrophe. And for each of the characters, the principal characters in this book, who have all turned 60 as the novel begins, I think most people who turn that corner at 60 even though 60 is the new 50. (laughs) Almost the new 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think even the most optimistic of us, and I share some of Lucy's optimism, but at 60, I don't think any of us thinks we're halfway. (laughs) And so this was a book that I came to understand in, in the way that Empire Falls, somewhere along in the writing of that novel, I came to understand that it was a book about cruelty, Somewhere along the line in this, I began to suspect that I was writing a book about despair, among other things. And let's talk about turning 60. The three main (laughs) characters in the book, as you said, have all reached the age of 60. How does that affect the tone of the book? It seems very sort of reflective to me. And, And I should note that you're 58, so you're getting close, so there's probably some of you in there, too. This is pure imagination. I have no idea what it would be like to to be that age. Yeah, they're all turning 60. And I think that 60, because we know we're over halfway, I think you get to that point where you hear more doors closing behind you, as one of the characters note in this book, is that you're aware that you hear more doors closing behind you than there are in front of you to choose from. And when you get to that stage, you begin to look back at your life and you begin to look for what one of the characters in this book refers to as the figure in the carpet. I didn't have to wait to be 60 to to look at that. I remember turning 50 uh, and I was probably thinking about it even before that. But just, you know, um, my life has taken so many turns that I never would would have anticipated that Barbara and I have been married now for 36 years. I never dreamed we'd be married that long. (laughs) Uh, I never dreamed that our children, obviously I thought we were going to stay married, but, but, you know, we had children. Uh, The children are now grown. We're empty nesters. 
And, you know, a lot of people in this situation just begin to look backward. They begin to want to say, all right, how did what happen compared to what I thought was going to happen? And how the devil did I end up here? Because this wasn't anything, you know, for good or bad, this wasn't in the plan. So I think, yeah, I think 60 is, a, is uh, most people have started to have some of those thoughts. And people like Lucy and Noonan, who's a boyhood friend who's had a very different life, and Sarah, the other person uh, who's turning 60, they have real reasons to look at their lives and say to themselves, am I living my destiny or am I living somebody else's? It's so often said, Richard, to aspiring writers, write what you know, write what you know, write what you know. How much is this book what you, Richard Russo, know? Yeah, I, I mean, and I, God knows I taught for a lot of years, and I always suggested that to students, to write what you know. It's, it's kind of half of the advice, I think. Or maybe it's the whole advice, but it trails a caveat. The two things that young writers have to know is that they should write what they know, but also know that what they know isn't enough. And so they'd be wise to start writing about something that they know, uh, a person that they know, a place that they know, an emotion that they know. If you're going to take leaps of imagination, which ultimately you will have to do, you can't leap from the air into the air. You've got to be standing on some sort of firm ground, and what you know is that firm ground. However, ultimately, you do have to leap, and it's imagination that allows you to do that, and it's what allows you to get away from autobiography. I think most writers, and I'm certainly, uh, certainly one of those, my books have become somewhat, each book is a little bit less autobiographical than the last, in that I take to imaginative wing, I think, a little bit sooner with each book. What I know now is that I can no longer tell literal truth for very long, which is just as well because I'm not inclined to. Um, I don't tell literal truth about anybody or anything for very long. Well, talk a little bit more, though, Richard, about your own upbringing in Gloversville, New York, in upstate mm -hmm. New York, a town that I think was in similar economic circumstances to uh, the fictional town in Bridge of Size. Yeah, I not only grew up in that small town, but, um, you know, I live in a small town now, a very different uh, small town, demographically, geographically, and all of, and all of that. A lot of my first, uh, my teaching jobs were uh, in small towns. Uh, one was in Altoona, Pennsylvania, which served as a kind of Railton, Pennsylvania. I lived in Waterville, Maine, which uh, with its neighboring Skowhegan formed the towns in Empire Falls. So I've spent, it's not only just my childhood, but with the exception of my schooling at the University of Arizona, Tucson's the only city I've ever lived in. So almost all of my experience comes from small towns. And I've always felt that what you learn in the first 17, 18 years of your life is probably what you're going to know best for the rest of your life. I always feel sorry for people like army brats, you know, who have been taken from one army base to another and one country to another. And in one sense, they have, you know, somebody whose parents have, you know, moved around from job to job. My daughters kind of fall into that category, actually, now that I think about it. But one of the things that happens as a result of that is they get a lot of different experiences early on. But I feel like these towns, I know these towns kind of to the marrow of my bones. I would never have to look up anything. I have no need to research because 
Those are part of my hardwiring. And I think if you move a lot in the first 17, 18 years of your life, somehow or other people that I've known who have been that way, they know a lot more things, but there's somehow that one or two things that you know really well when you spend that first 18 years somewhere. We actually have some questions along that line from our audience. Here's one along that line now, Richard. This person says, what inspires your passion for the blue-collar class? Well, I'll tell you a story. That's what I do best. When I was in college, I was living in Tucson, Arizona, and I would come home every summer work to work road construction with my father. And um, that was difficult in a couple of ways, one of which was that I was learning at the university a new language. I was, I was learning the language of the academy. I was learning the language of the professions. And after working on a road crew all summer long, when I went back to college, I had to you know, clean up my act. I had to change my language. I had to learn to speak a new language. And it was just as important to do that heading in the other direction. After I'd been in the university responding to professors' questions, um, I would come back and work on a road crew, and if I used the same language I used in talking to professors, I would have been laughed out of town. So I had to learn that, I had to learn that language in, in coming back. And it was, sometimes it was like a diver getting the bends, because I'd be in, in Tucson one day, the next day I'd be on a road crew, and wow, the adjustment was just uh, tremendous. It would take me a, at least a few days to get the, my rhythms of speech back. But I loved working with the guys on the road crew. And the last job that I worked on with my father, I was working with a group of carpenters. And this one guy that I liked a lot, his name was Chet. I don't actually remember his last name, but he said on the last day that I was there, I was going back to the university, and he said um, to me, kind of took me aside when it was just, he said, uh, you know, have a good life. He said, your life is going to be different from ours. Um, he said, you're going to go away. You're going to be probably a teacher or a professor. You're going to do something... He said, but you're going to live in a different kind of house than we live in, and you're going to talk a different language than we talk, and you're going to have more money than we have, and you're going to have more opportunities. He said, probably a year or two from now, you're not going to remember any of us. And he said, but good, you're going to have that chance. But his saying, number one, go have a good life, which, which he really meant. He was, not, he was not being sarcastic at all. He meant that. Go, um, God, they treated us college kids. They just busted us up one side and down the other, but they, but they really did want that for us. But he said, he, and, he, and he firmly believed, I think, that in a year or two I would, have, I would have forgotten him, all the other guys that I'd worked with all those years. And I have to say over about the next five years, I did everything I could to prove him right, <laughs> in a way. And it was only later that what he said, that I was reminded of what he said, and uh, that that was a challenge, and it was a challenge that I was meant to take up. Here's another one from the audience, Richard. The future of the American small town. Is there one? Ah, well. I think that I would answer that in a kind of sociological way. I think that there are towns that, that are too far gone. On, on the other hand, uh, I think that there are towns, and we're seeing the kind of this metamorphosis all the time, um, the last scene in the movie of Empire Falls is, is Miles Roby's uh, mill town of Empire Falls. And there's been a fresh infusion of money, and they have taken that old mill, and a calling center has moved in, and they've opened up a couple of, of, of nice restaurants, and, they've re and they're redoing the top floor of the mills in, into condo lofts. And in Empire Falls, all of that happens in this, in what you see uh, 
across the river is a rainbow, and it's hilarious, I think, actually. So you see that these people who were living in Empire Falls, Miles Roby among them, everybody who had a house for sale and couldn't sell it, you see that in a town like Empire Falls, when you're just about to give up on it, something happens. And, and, um, and the town is in some way saved. What troubles me about that, what troubled me about it in the writing of the novel of Empire Falls, uh, and what troubles me in the towns when I was traveling with Empire Falls, I would go to towns just like that, mill towns where they were, where they were finding a use for the old mill. People were coming in with money, they were doing things, they were building condos, they were building lofts, they were putting in shishi restaurants, they were doing all of those things. But none of that benefited the people in those towns who needed those jobs, who now could not afford to sell their houses because they couldn't, they certainly weren't going to buy one of those lofts. And the people who have worked the hardest in those towns and who have the legacy of labor, as Miles Roby said, the people, the people who built this town instead of the ones who just think they do or think that they did, those people very often are not the ones uh, to benefit from money when it does haphazardly uh, some, sometimes stumble on, on these down-on-their-luck towns. So again, um, the answer is, is a complex one. Is there a future for the small town? Yes, there is, but it's not quite the future we would necessarily wish, and it's not across the board. There are some, uh, I fear, that are just um, too far gone. Having said that, however, I have stepped over the line from what I know into what I don't know. I'm not a sociologist. I am a storyteller. Uh, I only know one or two things. I've already told you what those are, and, and uh, I've already told you more, much more than I know. Uh, <laughs> but here's something I think you do know about, yeah, okay. and that's writing. And okay. since this is a series of writers, writers on a New England stage, we always get lots of questions just about the process of writing, the discipline of writing. Tell us, Richard, about your first attempt to get published. How old you were what the piece was that you were trying to sell, and, and what happened? Um, I came to the process rather late, um, and in some ways that was good. Uh, in many ways it was good. Um, I was finishing up a Ph.D. in American literature, um, and uh, consequently a lot of my study of writing um, I did when I didn't know I was studying it because I was reading Dickens and I was reading Twain. Uh, you probably saw a little Twain in that, or heard a little Twain tonight in that fence painting section that I, that I read from, from Bridge of Sighs. I was, I was studying um, Fitzgerald, and I had no idea at the time that I would ever use any of that as, uh, as a writer. Uh, but I was, I was studying it just the same, and, um, but, but I was 28, 29 before I realized I wanted to do anything other than be the scholar which I was training to be. Um, so I was 28, 29 before I wrote my first perfectly wretched and utterly unpublishable story. And what was I, it called? I don't remember anymore, and if I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> um, but, you know, I started writing stories. I, I got, once I got bitten by the bug, I did it all the time. Um, and I had no idea where to send my stories. All these I short knew, stories. These were short stories. All I knew was that I wanted to be published, and um, I, I remember sending one of my first uh, short stories to uh, The New Yorker, Good Housekeeping, and Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. This was the same <laughs> story. 
So who published which I, it? Which I thought was suitable to all three markets. <laughs> <laughs> if they were just willing to give it a go. Um, and, and so, I mean, all you can just imagine the sorts of rejections that would come back from, uh, from that. And that went on probably for a couple of years. My first publication was in a Canadian magazine, a university magazine published by a graduate student there uh, named David Green, and it was called, by no coincidence, Green's Magazine. And I sent them a story, and they published it, and it, was, and it paid in copies, of course. It was my first publication. I was very proud of it until I saw it, and it came to me in the mail, and you couldn't even say it was bound. It was stapled uh, in the center. Uh, it was kind of folded over in, in uh, quarto fashion, uh, stapled in the middle, and I took no end of abuse from, from a couple of friends who were also writers, and we were all just trying to get published at the same time, and who, who wasted no time reminding me of the fact that I actually had to go to a foreign country in order to be published. <laughs> Well, and how much did that Pulitzer Prize uh, that you won in 2002 for Empire Falls sit on your shoulder while you were writing this one? You know, it seems like there'd be a lot of pressure. You can just hear the reviews. Well, it wasn't quite as good as the Pulitzer Prize. You know, how much was that a monkey on your back while you were writing Bridges Size? I, I won't say that there was no weight at all. The first thing that I would say is that if you're fortunate enough to win a prize like that, one of the, and if, and if you're honest at all, you have to realize that the year you won it, that could have gone to a couple of dozen or three dozen other novels. I mean, I could still recite to you from the year that I won the wonderful novels that were published that year. And if any one of them had won, nobody would have had any cause for complaint. So, num- you know, you got you to gotta be lucky, um, um, among other things. It, it helps to write, obviously, it, you've, you've got to write a good book, but, but then everything else has to go right, too. So you've been very lucky. And part of what sits on your shoulders is because you were blessed once, you, you want the next book to be good because... You don't want people to be saying, you know, he really didn't deserve it for Empire Falls. You know it should have been the corrections that year. And um, the, the, the judges must have been deranged. And, and the proof of that is in the new book, right? Because it, the, it's, it's the next book out that kind of in some way justifies uh, or, or fails to the prize that you were lucky enough to get before. But the good part of it is for me anyway, was that having been blessed in that way, I did say to myself, all right, let's make sure that this next book really is your best work. If it's not as good as Empire Falls, if it's better, if, if it's better than Empire Falls, don't worry so much about that. Just, realize, just, just try to make sure that every day you write, you're, 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 you're writing, um, uh, you're doing your very best work, and if you can say that, then, then you, can, you can let it go. Some of the characters in this book make some profound choices at young ages that very much shape their entire lives. Uh, how much do you, as a writer, struggle with those choices as you go along? I mean, do you start off this thing saying, okay, these two are going to stay married, these two, you know, or, or as you're writing, do you come to those moments and then say, okay, I'm going to make Noonan go this way, not that way? Yeah. I guess yeah. what I'm asking is how much is preordained yeah. because you're God, basically, yeah, for these yeah, characters, and yeah. how much oh, happens along <laughs> the way. <laughs> I'm God, yeah. Uh, well, you know, um, <laughs> I am at the controls. I, I will give you that much. Um, 
but I always like to think that I start out in a, in a place where I know a few things. I have a kind of bedrock of knowledge that I will constantly go back to. A few things that I know about uh, usually two or three characters that I sense will be important to me throughout the rest of the book. After that, I like to, I like to let them tell me what's going to go on. Uh, so I don't, I don't outline, I don't have much of a sense of where the story is going. Um, you know, it, one of the things that people ask, which they think of as a technical term, but, it, but really is, is somewhat greater than that, they'll ask me, for instance, how many revisions did you do of Empire Falls? Or how many revisions did you do of Bridge of Size? And, and the question is, is based on a profound uh, misassumption on the part of the questioner, which is that you write a book from the beginning to the end. Whereas usually what happens is that you write a book until you make your first major blunder, which requires you to go back and start the book again. Um, and um, when the first time you, you let a character do the wrong thing, you can only go on for another 25 pages or so until you realize that everything that you've written just isn't as good as what you've written before. And so you backtrack and you say, well, wh where did it start going wrong? And you find that, and then you go back and say to yourself, you know what, That's the, he said the wrong thing there, or he did the wrong thing there. And you, and you go back, and, and, and then once you've found that, very often you, you'll say, all right, let's just start again. Let's, let's rejigger this here. Or you'll realize that, you know, this other character that I just introduced really should have been there from the beginning. So you start again. This will happen very often six or seven times, for me anyway, this will happen six or seven times in a novel. You'll, you'll go until you make the kind of major mistake that, that just does not allow you to go forward anymore. What that means in terms of practicalities is that the first half of the book will probably will be revised a dozen times or more. The last 50 pages of the book you might only have to revise once. Because by then, almost all your decisions have been made. It's, you're dealing now just with consequences. And that's much easier. You're just dealing with the consequences of the decisions that are now etched in stone. So less revision is required. It might take more than two, but, but basically it's cosmetic. Most of the serious gut-wrenching decisions that you have to make take place in the first third to half of the novel. Any final thoughts from you, uh, Richard, on what you hope readers walk away with if they choose to pick up and read this book? Um, well, at the, at the risk of, of sounding like a, a name dropper here, um, uh, I did get a very early uh, call. Um, I think it was, I don't know, I think it was even before galleys. It might have been in page proofs or it might have been, I, I forget where it was, but um, I thought I owed uh, um, Paul Newman a look at this book. We've done, uh, he's done uh, two novels of mine and we also did the movie Twilight together and he's, he's, um, he's been not just, um, he's, not, he's not just been a wonderful actor uh, in those projects but you know uh, Empire Falls wouldn't have gotten done but for him and I, I owe Paul an awful lot and I sent him, so I sent it to him not in manuscript but the first stuff that came off the press I sent to him. And he gave me a very early call, uh, and he said, um, um, uh, you know, um, thanks, for, thanks for sending this. Um, I thought it was a wonderful novel. And he said, you know, he said, you treat those people as if they were kings and presidents. Um, 
and he kind of let his voice fall, and I thought, okay, I'm going to remember that one, because I think um, uh, about this book and about um, my other novels uh, is that, that, that these, these people are profoundly interesting to me, and it always amazes me that they're interesting uh, to other people, because sometimes their lives are not terribly dramatic, and Lucy Lynch is a character who um, some people might look at the life that he lived. He himself says this in the early going. Some people might look at the life that I've lived and see it as sad, as diminished. Um, and he says about himself, uh, he considers himself to be an extraordinarily um, lucky man uh, to have the wife that he has, the, the, um, the son that he has, to have lived the life that he lived in the place that he's lived. He doesn't view his life as being uh, diminished or restricted at all. I feel much the same about these people, and um, the only thing I would leave you with is, you know, I hope you feel the same way about them. I hope you enjoy their company as much as I did. Richard Russo, thank I you. I enjoyed it. Thank you.